Take your Bible tonight and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 in the scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're at. And as you're turning, would you stand out of respect for God's word? We'll get into the message in just a moment. I want to thank you for coming. I know some of you have braved traffic and tried your best to get here. And I thank you very much for doing that. I want to encourage you to go by the side table. There are some items that are there. We'll try to put some more out as the week progresses. But there are some itineraries of this year where we're going to be. And so if you'd grab that and maybe stick it in your Bible or your prayer journal, that'd be good. Uh, there's this. I may have made it available in the past, but how to encourage your pastor. Very important, very helpful. I think that's a good resource if you're new to the church. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is some people have the gift of discouragement. <laughs> and and um, I don't want to be one of those. I'm not sure how you want to be, but I don't want to be one of those. And I especially don't want to be one of those to my pastor. I want to be an encourager and a help. And there's some great ways that you can do just that. Here's just a couple. Don't compare him with other preachers. Don't do that. Your pastor is a unique, uniquely designed individual that God has created for this church and for this place. And uh, other preachers have different gifts and different abilities. Sometimes people say, oh, Brother Dwight, man, that message was good and you hardly used any notes. But what people don't know is that I can preach this the next place if I want to. And I've probably preached it 30 times before, and unless it's a new message. So uh, your pastor has to come up with three, at least three, sometimes five new messages every week. And so you don't compare him with other preachers. God uses him directly and distinctly. Here's one. Uh, make sure the pastor uh, never attempt to pit the pastor against his staff or the staff against his pastor. That's very good. That's like a teenager trying to pit mom against dad and dad against mom. You know, maybe it's successful, but it's not going to really accomplish much. And it's not going to bring about any good result. Here's one. Determine to bloom where you're planted. Just bloom where you're planted. Just honor the Lord right here and do the best you can to shed as much light right where you're at. That's a, that's a really good one. So there are about 40 different ways that you can encourage your pastor. And I'm sure you can add to this list. But that's over there. We'll try to add some more. Also, there's some thumb drives. If you'd like to get all of our messages on, uh, on thumb drive, you can get that for a fraction of the cost if you were to buy that uh, individually through the CDs. But I'm thankful, so thankful that you've come tonight. And I'm thankful that we can open up the Bible and know that we have the absolute perfect word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're at. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's notice what the Bible says in verse 21. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Father, help me as I preach these words. May they be clear and understandable, and I pray. 
for a Holy Ghost unction and anointing as the Word of God goes forth. Help everyone here to have the need they came with met by the time they leave. Now, Lord, that means I have to be Spirit-filled as I preach, and Lord, they have to have Spirit-filled ears as they listen. I pray that we would hear the Word of God and that we would receive it and that we would know it so that we can go out and give it. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a component in the Christian life that is oftentimes overlooked, that is sometimes avoided, that is many times misunderstood. But I will tell you, it is absolutely essential if we as Christians are going to be the kind of Christian that we ought to be. I want you to understand this vital component in the Christian life. It is so important that we have it. We cannot fully know the Lord without it. We cannot effectively minister to others without it. Some of the richest truths are gleaned in the midst of it. Some of the finest and most timeless songs have been penned because of it. Some of the greatest Christian heroes have become so through it. It's what I call the painful component. If you'll allow it and accept it and acquire all the lessons you can from it, the Lord will gather you to higher heights and grow your spiritual strength more than you can possibly imagine. If you reject it and resist it and refuse it, then God's going to have to bring you back into the classroom, use it once again to teach you and mold you and purge you. The painful component is something that we don't like. I don't know about you, but I'm allergic to pain of every kind. I try to avoid it. I'm not one that's uh, espousing that we have a martyr's complex tonight. But the fact of the matter is, is that this painful component is absolutely essential in our Christian experience. It's not something found in the prosperity gospel. Of course, there's a lot of things not found in the prosperity gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel's not found in the prosperity gospel. But, uh, but, but uh, the painful component is definitely not a part of it. Uh, they try to gloss over it. They try to tell you what, uh, what good things are in the Christian life. And there are many good things. They try to tell you some false things that are not part of the Christian life that they try to force into the experience. But one thing they absolutely leave out is this painful component, this matter of suffering. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. Now, I don't think anyone here would deny a desire to be knowing God's power, especially the power of his resurrection. But you know what precedes a resurrection? A crucifixion. The painful component. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. Now, let me explain. We do not believe that suffering is a part of our salvation. That if I suffer, or the more I suffer, then I can be more saved. That's not what we're talking about here. 
Uh, there are those in certain parts of the world during the Holy Week uh, leading up to the resurrection that will let themselves be nailed to a cross and be paraded through the streets. Some will get on their knees and make a holy pilgrimage and, and mutilate themselves in the process. We're not talking about that at all. That is works for salvation and it doesn't lean anywhere but emptiness and unfulfillment. We're not talking about that. We're talking about after a person has been saved that God would have them go through a veil of suffering, through a trial, through a purging test, through some kind of furnace of affliction so that they can become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's vital that we understand it. The Bible says that the refiner puts the silver in the fire so that the dross can come to the top and that the silver will come forth more pure at the end. That's what God wants to do when he puts us through the, and, and causes us to experience the painful component. And I believe that 1 Peter and 2 Peter are great passages and texts to deal with this painful component. Uh, I want you to understand some things about suffering, that suffering purifies us as Christians. I'm speaking to those that are believers. Uh, suffering purifies us. It brings the dross to the surface so that the refiner can take it away. And the refiner is trying to remove the dross and heat up the fire, remove more dross and heat up the fire so that he can look down and see his image in the metal. And that's what he's wanting to do in your life. He's wanting to see the image a few years ago. I was preaching in North Carolina, eastern North Carolina, and there was a, a, a preacher there who had been a missionary in Africa. And uh, he said, Brother Dwight, he said, I want to show you something. And he reached down underneath the couch where we were at in his house, and he pulled out two packages of neatly wrapped paper, and he unwrapped those packages, and there was a beautiful ivory tusk that had been carved for him by the dear African believers while he was a missionary in Africa. Beautiful carvings. He said, you know, Dwight, he said, I saw in these carvings something beautiful. And I asked the carver, how did you do this? He said, oh, that's easy. He said, I saw the image of the final product and I took away everything that didn't match that image that didn't make that beautiful image. That's what God is doing in your life and in mine through suffering. Now, some years back, I went through a trial that I don't like to think about and really don't like to dwell on, but I went through this trial, and it was for my own good. It was for God's glory, and one day, Pastor, as I was riding around on the lawnmower trying to cut the lawn that we have, and I, was, I spent a lot of time riding around on that lawnmower and having a lot of conversations with the Lord, and as I was walking around the yard and riding and picking up the regular uh, trash in the yard and the, the branches that had fallen down through a windstorm, I all of a sudden, with a broken heart, said, Lord, I'm closer to you now than I've been in years. Lord, I, I'm, I have a warmer heart for you now than I've had in years. Lord, I'm not sure what this is, but this feels like I'm revived. But you know, I didn't expect revival to come that way. We expect revival to come through a revival campaign in a local church or in a tent meeting. We expect revival to come as a result of an all-night prayer meeting. And certainly, both of those are vital. We expect revival to come through some fiery message or through some sermon and the altar call to be flooded with people seeking God. 
We expect revival to come through a great awakening, and it may. But sometimes God sends revival in a package that when opened brings pain. And it's through that painful veil that God wants to bring us into the image of his likeness. I want to preach to you on the painful component tonight and teach you from the Bible the proper responses to suffering. I want you to notice from 1 Peter chapter 1 that it's all throughout the Bible. We'll come to 1 Peter 2 in our main text in a moment. Notice 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To the strangers? To the strangers? That's who these believers were. And he refers to them as strangers. Later he will refer to them as strangers and pilgrims. These are strangers. They're in a strange land. These are strangers. They're not in their homeland. They've been scattered abroad. In fact, he's referring to them throughout the book of First and Second Peter as strangers and pilgrims. In other words, they're just passing through. This is in our land anyway. This is in our country anyway. We look for a country and a city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. We're looking for a country where our citizenship is really settled. You don't have to worry about whether or not there's citizenship, proper citizenship, or illegal citizenship in the glory. That's where our citizenship is settled. Now, I thank God for America. I thank God for this great country and what God has allowed her to see and accomplish in the last 200 and some years. But I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And we need to focus on that. We need to lift our eyes and think about that. We need to, instead of thinking about how we can populate this country, we need to be considering how we'll populate the next. How we'll populate heaven. How we'll get those that will be be washed in the blood of Jesus and those redeemed by his precious, precious salvation through the cross, those who will accept his eternal redemption by faith. And I want to ask you, is this world your home? Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? I want to say every one of us have three things in common. We're all sinners, we all are going to die, and we're all going to meet the Lord. And if you have never been born again, that is, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then God brought you to this place and this location tonight so that you could be born again. He brought you here so that you could be saved. He brought you to this place so that you could understand this truth, that you're a sinner, as we all are. That you, because of your sin, deserve hell, as we all do. That your sin is pressing you fast towards hell and far away from God. And there's only one thing that can change that, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the suffering that he bore on your behalf and the sin that he took, your sin upon his account. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And through his death, shed blood, burial, and resurrection, you and I can have eternal life, but only through that, not through a church membership, not through some religious affiliation, not through some pattern of good deeds, not through some religious ritual, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I want to ask, have you placed your faith in him? Some years ago, I was asked by some to go and visit a lady in Memphis who had had cancer. She had been struggling with it for about a year and a half, and they'd asked her to come in in October. This was November, and they hadn't let her go since she came in. 
I said, absolutely, I'll be glad to go. Well, I went, I had to go down and run some errands and time got away from me and I wasn't able to go during the regular visiting hours. So I just said, well, Lord, I'm going to go after hours. So I came into the hospital and, and, uh, I found where she was. I began to witness to her. She was from Eritrea over by Ethiopia and she and her family had fled during some of the some of the revolution and war times and she'd gone to Italy and she'd lived in Italy for a while and now she was here in America. And I began to talk to her. She was so warm. I told her who I was. I told her how I knew about her situation and began to witness to her. And honestly, as I was witnessing to her, I thought this lady is ready. She is going to get saved tonight. She had grown up in a Catholic background, very devout. And, and uh, I began to explain to her that she was a sinner. That wasn't hard for her to understand. That the Bible was true and that wasn't hard for her to understand because she understood and respected the Bible. I, I began to explain to her that there was a judgment for her sin and she understood that clearly. And, and that there was no way of salvation except through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I said, would you like to tonight, right now, accept Jesus Christ? I said, ma'am, you don't have much time. I said, you may live to walk out of this hospital or you may not, but I said, you need Jesus Christ regardless. I said, would you like to trust Christ tonight? She said, yes, I would. And so I began to guide her in a, in a sinner's prayer of sorts and I began to, to help her to, to, to word a prayer to the Lord. And I said, if you'll believe on Christ alone, he'll save you. I said, would you pray and cry out to God, dear Lord Jesus? And she prayed, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. And I desperately need your love. And I desperately need your love. And Jesus, right now, I'm trusting in you alone to save me. She said, right now, I'm trusting you alone to save me. I said, I'm trusting in no one else but you, Lord Jesus. She said, I'm trusting in no one else but you, Lord Jesus. And Mary. And I opened my eyes. And I paused. And I said, no, ma'am. I said, you can't trust in Mary and Jesus. I said, Mary has no saving power whatsoever. I said, in fact, Mary referred to Jesus as her Savior. And I said, only a sinner needs a Savior. I said, Mary was certainly a virgin through, through the whole process of Jesus being born. But Mary was a sinner needing a Savior. You can't trust in Jesus plus Mary. Now, I only use that example to say that it can't be someone other than Jesus, and it can't be someone including Jesus. What would you think tonight if after the service we were just chatting, and I, you said to me, you know, there's been a great question that's been perplexing my mind all day. And I said, oh. I said, well, I might have an answer. What's the question? And you say, how did we get here? How did this world come to be? And I step back and say, you don't know? And you say, no, I don't know. I said, well, I know that. You, you, you do? Yes. Well, well, Brother Smith, tell me. Well, me and God, we made the world together, he and I. And you looked at me and said, what? I said, well, God and I, we were there at creation and we made the world together. He did some of the trees and I did others. He did some of the water and I did others. And he did some of the animals and I did others. Well, now you'd probably be reeling and probably be wondering where they found this guy, Dwight Smith. And, and uh, then you say, well, now, now, now Brother Smith, that, that's, that's interesting. But, but there's another question that's been troubling my mind. And I said, well, what is that? We've settled the first one. What's that? And, and you say, well, 
how does this world hold together? They still haven't quite figured out how the atom keeps from just blowing to pieces. How does this world sustained? How does it hold together? Oh, I said, you are asking the right questions because I have the answer for that. And you say, you do? Yes. Me and God hold the world together every day. I mean, he does the night watch usually. And when I get up in the morning, I take over from there. Now, wouldn't that be strange for me to claim such preposterous idea that we, me and God, made the world or that we, me and God, hold the world together? But listen to me carefully. It's not a bit different than you thinking that you can have part in your salvation. You see, God's not going to share credit with creating the world with you or me, and he shouldn't. God's not going to share credit with sustaining the world with you and me, and he shouldn't. God's not going to share credit for your salvation. He said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another. He won't give it to a pope. He won't give it to a monk. He won't give it to a priest. He won't give it to a preacher. He won't give it to a church. He won't give it to a work. He won't give it to anyone. He's the one that authored salvation. In fact, he's not only the author, he's the finisher. All you must do is accept him by faith. And if you haven't done that tonight, then you're in desperate need of salvation. Tonight before you leave, you should be saved. Tonight before you leave, you should call upon Christ. Tonight you should make the decision to believe on the Savior. But after you get saved, you can expect sometime in your Christian experience that there will be the painful component. It may be sooner than later. It may be stronger than others seem to experience. It may be a different cross for you than it is for someone else. But you will bear a cross. So look at what he says. These are strangers scattered throughout all of these cities. And why were they scattered about? Because of persecution. Taken away from their familiar surroundings. Snatched away from their homes. Put in a land that they could not speak the language and had to learn. Now he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see what you ought to do when you experience the painful component. Number one, we must look to Christ's example. We must look to Christ's example. Would you say that tonight? Look to Christ's example. Wonderful. Would you say it again? Look to Christ's example. Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. For Verse 20, for what glory is it? Notice the suffering for, for sake of context. Look at verse number 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. I mean, in prayer meeting, nobody with good sense raises their hand and says, preacher, pray for me. And the preacher says, well, yes, how, how, how may I pray for you tonight? Well, pray for me because on my way to church, I got a speeding ticket. And I just feel like that the persecution in America has begun. Now, wouldn't everybody in the church do one of these numbers? Where did this guy come from? Persecution has begun. You, well, I, I'm so sorry to hear this. How fast were you going? Well, I was only going 25 miles over the speed limit. We'll pray for you, brother. <laughs> but probably not the way he thinks. What glory is it if you be buffeted for your faults and you take it patiently? I'm just suffering for Jesus. That, that police officer gave me a ticket and, and I'm just going to lay it before the Lord tonight and forgive him. <laughs> well, you can forgive all day long, but, but you're not going to, you, you're not, that's not even ringing true. But, 
he says, when ye suffer for doing well and ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, I don't think anyone here would doubt that we need to follow the example of Christ's prayer life. He rose up early in the morning, according to Luke chapter, or Mark chapter 2, departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in John chapter 17. He prayed before he chose his disciples. He prayed before he was tempted in the wilderness. We would not doubt that we need to follow his example in prayer. We would not doubt that we need to follow the example of the Lord Jesus after souls. He went after souls in John chapter 4. He went after souls in Luke chapter number 5. He went after souls in Matthew chapter number 8 and Matthew chapter 9. No one would doubt we need to follow his example there. No one would doubt we need to follow his example in preaching. He went from city to city and town to town in Mark chapter 2, preaching the gospel in the kingdom of God. No one would doubt that we need to follow his example in purity of life and in proper choices and in good attitude and in taking a stand. But we also should follow his example in suffering. You say, what's his example? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 22. It says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Verse number 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In other words, when he was suffering, while he was suffering, in the garden when they came to accost him, in the, in the court of Gabbatha when they falsely accused him, in, in Golgotha when they wrongly crucified him, he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Other thieves that were crucified would shout insults and hurl, hurl threats at people if they were able to come down from the cross. They would shout insults at the soldiers, but Jesus didn't do that. Who when he was reviled, verse 23, reviled not again, if thou be the son of God, save thyself and us. He didn't do that. He didn't respond in kind. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You see, we're to look to Christ's example. Uh, I was thinking tonight as I sat on the platform, I was looking around at some of the young people, and I prayed this, Lord, help these young people always to keep their eyes on Jesus. Young people, listen, if you put your eyes on men, they'll fail you. They'll lead you wrongly. They'll disappoint you. Even good men, if you watch me too long, there'll be disappointment in me. But there's no disappointment in Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus. He will never fail you. He will never lead you astray. He will never let you down. He will never misguide you. Follow Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, he'll help you through the ups and downs of life. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, when preachers fail or go astray or lead others astray, he'll, you'll keep a steady path. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll never veer from the truth. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, he'll lead you through the valley of suffering. And oh, look, 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 there in the valley is the lily of the valley. It's not the lily of the mountaintop. He's the lily of the valley. There in the 
the valley, there in the shadows, there in the darkness, there in the fearsome moments of life, you'll find the sweet lily with its sweet array and its sweet fragrance. There in the valley, you'll find the sweet rose of Sharon. There in the valley is where you'll find him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You look to Christ's example. Notice what he says in verse number 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. You know, there's something about suffering that will produce righteous living. Something about suffering that will test the metal of your character and your godliness that will produce good character and godliness. Don't quit. Don't get even. Don't lash out. There will be unbelievers that mistreat you. There will be believers that betray you. There will be trouble in your wake and in your way. But don't give up on Jesus. Don't quit. In due season we shall reap if we faint not. I want to draw your attention to this matter and consider, I want to challenge you to continue on and don't quit. Listen to what the Bible says in the old prophet in chapter number 40 of Isaiah. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, earth fainteth not neither is weary there is no searching of his understanding he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might he increaseth strength even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fail but fall but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint look to Christ's example and he'll help you through the valley number two Look at what the scripture says in 1 Peter 3 and verse number 14. In verse 12 it says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Number two, don't be afraid. Would you say it? Don't be afraid. Would you say it again? Don't be afraid. When you go through suffering and the Lord calls upon you at this moment to endure the painful component, don't be afraid. Do you know one of the MOs of the enemy, our adversary, is to stir up fear and to stir up terror. And if he can stir up fear and stir up terror in our lives, then we do one of two things. We either are paralyzed and we can't function, can't think clearly, or we in panic run here and there and overreact. That's exactly what he wants to happen. Now the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he wants a piece of you, but he doesn't want a piece of you for you. Don't think so highly of yourself. He wants a piece of you so he can attack your Savior. He hates you, but only so much as he hates your Savior. He wants to get you, not so that he can get you so much, but so that he can take out and hurt and malign and blaspheme your Savior. But his main tactic as the male lion is to crouch low in the grass, a distance away from the prey, and roar. And when he does, it causes the prey to either freeze for a moment in fear so that the female lions can go get the groceries or to run hither and yon confused. That's what he wants to do with you. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. It says in verse number 14, he says, Be not afraid of their terror, 
need to be troubled. Hey, the Bible says the weapons formed against you shall not prosper. The scripture says, if God be for us, who can be against us? The Bible says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It tells us that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything that is, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't be afraid. Nothing will separate you from the Lord, and nothing will separate the Lord from you. Be not afraid. Wow, what a truth. Number two, don't be afraid. Quickly, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. It says, but, all right, don't be afraid, but what's the, what's the antidote? You see, if there's a negative, there has to be a positive. So if there is an uh, I should not, then there should be an I should. So what's the I should? It says, be not afraid of their terror, verse number 14, but verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. All right, now watch this, ladies and gentlemen. He's saying, number three, be ready to witness. Be ready to witness. Would you say it with me? Be ready to witness. Would you say it again? Be ready to witness. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will let God have his way through the storm, and you will cling to him and cling to his promises and you will not be afraid and look to his example. Mark this, it will be a, an incredible platform to preach the gospel. Incredible. A friend of mine, Scott Hatchett, he lives in Wisconsin with his family and he's one of the finest Christians that I know, he and his family. In the last five to ten years has been through incredible difficulty. While he was working at a camp there in southern Wisconsin, he got some kind of crazy disease that was attacking his immune system. And the only way that he could find that was effective in combating it was to have a very strict diet and to run literally 15 miles a day. And he did it. And he was able to get it in check. Well, not long after he had contracted this disease, he found that three of his his children, he has five children, I believe, three of his children have type 1 diabetes. Of the three that have type 1 diabetes, one got a rare sarcoma cancer, and the other of the three, the other of the three, one of the others of the three got epilepsy. So this family is dealing with major health problems, major trouble. And, and God is just led and guided in his life. I mean, really, the Hatchet family is honestly one of the finest Christian families I know. And they've faced up under this storm. They've stood for the Lord. They've loved God through tears and through highs and through lows. And they've been an example. And one day I was talking to my friend Scott Hatchett, and I was talking to him about the suffering that he'd gone through. And he said, you know, Dwight, he said, the owner of the professional football team, the Green Bay Packers, he somehow got in touch with us through the contributions he makes to the local hospital. And he brought our family in to a dinner that was thousands of dollars a plate so that people could raise money to fight against cancer. And he said, he had us sitting at his table he said, people were, I mean, this was a major VIP event. He said, people were coming in, they were ushered in, they were brought right next to the uh, owner of the Green Bay Packers, and they were given just a minute or two to get a picture and then ushered out. He said, we're right there at his table. 
He said he asked that I would speak or that one of my family members would speak about this and they were able to give the gospel to literally, literally hundreds and thousands of people. He said they had their own team come and video them and, and, and give testimony of God's grace. I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, it won't always happen to that degree, but if you will respond rightly in the midst of your suffering, it is an incredible platform to preach the gospel. Uh, a friend of mine in Ohio, Matt Harbor, years ago, he was saved and saved in the Marines and met his wife, Liza. They began to have children. And uh, they had one child with severe birth defects. Now, Matt was saved out of paganism, saved out of an unsaved family. And from what I understand, his family gathered around the hospital room and said to him with disgust, what do you think of your God now? And Matt Harbour said, I'll tell you what I think of him. I love him now more than ever, and I believe in him now more than ever, and I'm more convinced now than ever that he's a God that is in control and that is good and he can be trusted. What a testimony that is. The, the truth be told, there's not many people that are really paying attention to your song, no offense intended, while the song leader, Brother AJ, is waving his arms all over the place and trying to get you to sing on Sunday morning. But when you suffer... There are unbelievers and believers alike that are watching, that are listening. And notice what he says in verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say because it's a parenthesis. I am for defending the scriptures. I am for giving an answer. This, is, this word give an answer is, is where one of the words that we find in the Bible, apologia. It's the idea of giving a defense. But this is one. I'm not against apologetics, but I think we put too much credence in modern, quote, apologetics when we just need to preach the gospel and preach the Bible and not be worried about defending it in this venue and that venue. And I find it interesting that in this context, when he uses the word apologetics or apologia, when he says give an answer, he's talking about suffering. Some people think they have to go and get some kind of theological degree from some seminary somewhere so that they can be a good apologist. Or you could respond properly to the suffering that God brings your way. You could claim that God is good and trust him in the midst of it. Number one, we need to look to Christ's example. Number two, we need to choose not to be afraid. Number three, we need to be ready to witness quickly, 1 Peter 3 and verse 16. It says, having a good conscience. That whereas they may speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now this is directly tied to the last phrase in verse 15, that we're to give an answer of the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. Not with arrogance, not with cynicism, not with hardness, not with haughtiness, but with meekness and with fear. And he's saying, having a good conscience. Number four, keep a clean conscience. Would you say it with me? Keep a clean conscience. Now, this is good advice anytime, but especially when you're suffering. Because you know what we do when we suffer? We think, you know, I need some comfort food. Is there anybody here like that other than me? I need some comfort food. And I think my comfort food is chocolate or cookies. Somebody brought me cookies tonight. And I say, amen to that. You, you know, we think, you know, I, you know, brother, Pastor Fong has been really hard on us lately. And he's been driving us here and pushing us there and pulling us here, trying to get raised money for this. And he's already got 
visions for newer and bigger and greater things. I mean, I mean, where do they get people like this, Brother Fong? I mean, he's just, he's just constantly moving forward for the Lord. And you know, honestly, I just get a little weary in it and I need some comfort food, right? So we slip away and we have our comfort food. But our comfort food isn't chocolate, it's sin. You know, I just need some sin. I need some self-indulgence, if you don't mind. Thank you very much. And I need some, some, some pandering, if you don't mind. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like some selfishness, if you please. And if I could have an extra shot of espresso and all that. If you don't mind, I just need a little extra comfort sin. No, no, no. No, no, when you're suffering, you don't need comfort sin. You need help from the Lord. You need God's wisdom and God's way. Keep a clean conscience. So when the false accusers come and falsely accuse your good conversation, their, their false accusations will be just that. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 4. Quickly, I want you to see it in every chapter. We've seen it in 1 Peter 1. They're scattered abroad. 1 Peter 2, we're to look to Christ's example. Not in 1 Peter 3, we're to choose not to be afraid, be ready to witness, keep a clean conscience. Look at 1 Peter 4 and verse number 12. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened unto you. <laughs> Watch, ladies and gentlemen, listen. Number five consider it normal. Would you say that with me? Consider it normal. This isn't strange. Now, this is the way it happens. It happens at teenagers. Uh, young people, they do it when, when, when maybe they're, they're called to account and their feet are held to the fire by mom and dad. This is what they'll do. They'll play innocent. Now, isn't that the truth? You know why you're laughing? Because some of you've had kids. <laughs> I mean, look, you have kids, and, and they know how to play the game. <gasps> I, but mom, look at my halo. <gasps> right? <laughs> we, we know you're a little angel, a little fallen angel. <laughs> Don't try to play the game. Now watch, folks. Listen to me. We do that with the Lord. Why? Why me? Now listen to me. I'm not trying to undermine anyone's suffering. I'm not trying to be trite or be disrespectful. But really, this is a part of the package. Just like going to church, just like reading our Bible, just like taking steps of growth, just like surrender, suffering is a part of the package. Consider it normal. This is not a strange thing. The fiery trial is all a part of what the Lord wants for you. It's to purge you. And oftentimes we say, Lord, why me? And sometimes the suffering is so incredible. It's so difficult. It's so hard and hard to comprehend. But Lord, the Lord says, this is my intent for you. Consider it normal. I want you to notice quickly, number six, the very next verse. It says, don't think it's strange in verse 12, verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoice. Wow. Number six, we need to rejoice and then some. Would you say it? Rejoice and then some. Rejoice and then some. 
Now, I'm not talking, and the Bible's not talking about a sadistic perspective. Oh, yes, <laughs> I would like some more suffering, please, if you don't mind. No, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about a cheesy plastic grin. It's talking about what's real. It's talking about, if need be, rejoicing with tears flowing down your cheeks. Rejoicing and trusting God. How can you rejoice? Because you're trusting God. Because you know he's bigger than it all. Rejoice. And then some. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 says, If ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Now the world doesn't understand that. What, what do you mean you're rejoicing in the midst of your suffering? What do you mean you're singing in the midst of your being burned at the stake? What do you mean you're rejoicing and trusting God even in the midst of your storm? What is this? The world doesn't understand that because their happiness is all dependent upon the happenstances and the circumstances around them. But our joy runs in a well that is much deeper than that. And it runs in a well that is a well of water springing up into everlasting life that continually satisfies. It's in the eternal eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our rejoicing is in Him. And no matter what He calls us to do, our rejoicing is in Jesus. No matter how the suffering comes. You know what God's looking for? Some Christians tonight that will just rejoice. Notice verse, four, verse 16. He says in verse 16, yet, and if ye, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Number seven, don't be ashamed. Would you say it with me? Don't be ashamed. Paul said it this way. Be not ashamed of my bonds. Oh, I'm so ashamed. We, we think that, listen to me carefully. The sooner we get rid of this safe, can, I know who I'm speaking to. I, I'm not pointing anybody out, but I know who I'm speaking to, and I know the crowd that's here tonight. And do you know what there is? In, in this part of the world, and in this climate and in this culture, there's a save face mentality. I'm just going to save face. I don't want to lose my honor. I'm going to save face. So I'm going to keep up the perfection perception. Oh, yeah, everything's all right with me. No suffering here. I don't have any troubles. No nope, working it all out. When maybe it would be helpful for you to get real with someone and say, I'm not going to be ashamed about all this. Can I tell you what I'm going through so that you can pray for me? You know, getting real with God and others helps everybody involved. I'm not saying we need to air our dirty laundry. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we need to be real. We don't have it all together. We haven't got it all figured out. We do have troubles and trials and difficulties. And when I am open with you, then you can see how I'm suffering and you can pray for me and you can realize, wait, I thought I was the only one. Now I know he's suffering too. Don't pretend. Don't put up the perfection perception, the save face mentality. Say, this is what I'm struggling with. Would you pray for me? Any wisdom you have, I'm open to it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. I want you to notice number eight and finally, what it says in verse number 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. I, I want to tell you, number eight, we need to commit ourselves to God. This is surrender. This is deeper consecration. This is more on the altar. This is all to Jesus I surrender. This is, Lord, I'm, I'm laying it now before you. I want you to have all my life. Uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. It's that kind of Christianity that God is calling us to. 
when we suffer. I'm going to leave you with two stories. First, Stephanie Wesco. I met her husband, Charles Wesco, in, in just the, the weekend of Labor Day. Uh, from Stephanie's dad, I had borrowed a van while our truck was in repair and in need of repair. And while I was dropping the van off and getting a couple of things transferred, I met Charles Wesco. He had his family of eight kids. He and his wife, they were going over to Cameroon. They were so excited. Eleven days or so after they got there, he was shot in the crossfire. The, the rebels riddled the car with bullets. He, his missionary, uh, Ben St. Clair, was there. His wife and one, at least one of their children were there. He said, it's a miracle they didn't all die. He said, there were bullet holes everywhere, all around in that car. He was shot through. His wife reached out and grabbed her husband and tried to stop the bleeding. They rushed him to the hospital, got him to the hospital, and when they tried in vain to rescue and save Charles Wesco's life, the doctor bowed before Stephanie and wept and thanked her for coming to his country to bring the gospel. Now she has to get her family home. Now, just now, now, just now, she's been diagnosed with some kind of liver cancer and she has four or five tumors in her liver right now. What is God doing? I don't know, but I will tell you this. In the midst of all of that, God is calling on everyone involved, even us watching, to afresh and anew commit ourselves to him. It's vital. This and I'm through, I was preaching with a friend of mine, just another evangelist that I'd met, and I was leading songs for him a couple years ago. And he traveled like I did, brought his kids up in a trailer like we do and traveled from place to place. He said he and his evangelistic team were in a particular church and the, some of the ladies of the team came to him, some of the young ladies and said, uh, Brother Sinclair, you need, you need to meet this 14-year-old teenage girl. He said, why? They said, she has spiritual insight like we've never seen, especially somebody of her age. He said, okay. So one night after the service, he sat down with this young lady, and he said, tell me your story. They began to talk. And as they began to talk, she told how she got saved. She was 11 or 12 when she, through the witness of this church, was led to Christ. And in the course of her salvation, not long after, she got baptized like every new believer should. And she began to live for God. And then through some strange circumstance while she was waiting for a ride somewhere, uh, some strange vehicle pulled up and a man snatched her in the vehicle, took her off and raped her, brought her back and dropped her off. She said, I went to my dad, the one person I thought would protect me and give some sense in the midst of it all. And I told him with tears what happened. And he said, you'll get over it. So she said, I went to the other person that I thought would provide some protection and, and reason, and it was my mom. And she had the same response. Brother Sinclair said, what did you do? She said, I wet myself to sleep every night. Every night I'd cover my pillow in tears. He said, he said well, how long did it last? She said, I, I'm not sure, but he said, she said, one night it changed. He said, how did it change? She said, one night as I was weeping myself to sleep, I began to think about what I'd been taught about God in my short time as a Christian. 
how that God was always good no matter what. And that he was always in control no matter what. Brother Sinclair said, what did you do? She said, that night on my bed, I began to thank God for this. And she said, as soon as I did, the burden began to lift and the clouds began to walk away. And she said, I, I had this peace. She said, it didn't take away the pain and even didn't take away the memories. But she said, I had a peace that was indescribable. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. When you thank God, not just that you're not in a trial or not just that you're coming out of a trial, but you thank God in the midst of your trial, two things happen. Number one, your spiritual maturity is enhanced. And number two, it is revealed. Wow. That's what God wants of us doesn't justify anything wrong or wicked that takes place and that we become prey to. It simply helps us to rise above it. When we respond to the painful component, God's way. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask how many of you would say, Preacher, without a doubt, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm sure that I'm saved. But you'd say, Preacher, lately I've been going through a valley a trial, a difficulty. And you said, preacher, though I have much to learn and a long way to grow, you said, preacher, I know that tonight I need to respond rightly to this matter of suffering. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right now and say, preacher, pray for me. God bless you. Thank you. Several. Good. Who else? A preacher, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But lately I've been going through a difficulty, a trial, for some, it may be great. For some, it may be small. But for each one going through it, it is a custom-made trial. You said, preacher, pray for me that I would respond rightly in the midst of my trial. That you, would you join these? Slip up your hands and preacher, pray for me. Question number two, how many of you can say without doubt, preacher, I've got a long way to grow, but I know this, I'm saved. I'm not hoping to get to heaven. I'm not trying to make it. I'm not attempting to earn it. I know that I'm going because I've been born again. If you don't know that, it won't help you or me to raise your hand. But if you do know that, would you just slip your hand up high? Yes, preacher, I know that I'm saved. If I died now or I died five years from now, I know that I'd go to heaven. God bless you. You can put your hands down. I wonder if you're here and you're one who couldn't raise your hand. You said, preacher, I don't know that. I'm not sure where I'm going when I die. I, I couldn't raise my hand just now, but I'd like to know. And I want to put my fears to rest and come to the cross and believe on Jesus Christ tonight. If that's you and say, preacher, pray for me. I need to be saved and I'd like to get it settled. If that's you, would you lift your hand? Is there anyone here like that? Just slip it up in a moment. I'll remember you in prayer. I'll not single you out or call you by name, but I want to pray for you and pray with you. Is there anyone here like that? Just slip up your hand. Say, preacher, pray for me. I could not raise my hand a moment ago. I do not know that I'm saved, but I need to know, and I want to know. Anyone? Just slip up your hand. Say, preacher, pray for me, and put it right back down. Anyone at all? Anyone at all? Preacher, pray for me. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're having our invitation. Bless, I pray. Help us to respond humbly and quickly and sincerely before you in Jesus' name.